Logo Geeks, it's Ian Padgett here, and this week I'm joined by Lisa Jacobs, where we'll be discussing how she founded her own brand design agency, how she's used Dribble to attract clients, and her design process too. But before we dive into that, if you're listening to this during the first couple of days of release, uh, so somewhere between the 22nd and 25th of November 2020, you might want to go and check out the future Black Friday deals. One of note in particular is the branding process drop, which includes a number of products from the future, including the core discovery product, the Starscapes course, the Star Guide kit, and the brand strategy workshop course too. Usually, if you were to buy all of that separately, it will cost you over $1,000 But for one day only, you can get all of that for $699, saving you well over $300. So if you want to go and check that out and up your game as a branding expert and to also see other future Black Friday deals, head over to logogeek.uk forward slash future. And for transparency, that is an affiliate link. So if you go to the website, via that link and purchase the product, I will receive a commission at absolutely no extra cost to you. And that will all go back in to keeping this podcast going. So again, to check out the future Black Friday deals, head over to logogeek.uk forward slash future. And if you've gone past that date and you go via that link, you'll still be able to check out the future products buy that link. And if you do purchase anything, you will be supporting the Logo Geek podcast at no extra cost to you. So this week on the podcast, I'm joined by Lisa Jacobs, a young designer based in the Netherlands. I first came across Lisa through a mutual friend, Mark Hirons, who hosts the Creative Waffle podcast. Uh, He had her on his show. And since then, I followed her work. And although she's at the very beginning of her career, I've noticed how she's been actively sharing her work, networking, doing Instagram lives, being part of online events, and really quickly making a name for herself and becoming successful too. And because of that, As I think she sets a really good example for recently graduated designers and to be honest, other designers too. I wanted to get her on the podcast to discover the steps that she's taken over the last three years since graduating to get to where she is today. In this interview, we discuss how she started out, how she founded her own freelance design business, how she's attracted clients through Dribbble and Instagram, uh, we'll dive into her logo design process, discuss the one logo approach, niching down and more. So let's get into this. Here is the interview with Lisa Jacobs. I'm really curious to kind of learn a, a little bit about your background because you're a relatively young designer if I'm right and correct me if I'm wrong you're 25 so you haven't been doing this that long and you do seem to be doing 
uh, really well based on what I've seen. So I think sharing some of your story will hopefully inspire some of the listeners. So I understand that you did a bachelor's degree in communications and multimedia design where you first got introduced to branding. Yeah. What, what did you do immediately after that? Um, so I think I graduated about three years ago. And at the time I had a kind of like a student job at a startup accelerator, which is, by the way, a really great way to build out a ton of network, like a huge network. So uh, I did that for a while, but um, I started being active around that time on Instagram. And I realized that looking at other people, what I really needed was some uh, agency experience because I felt like because my bachelor's degree didn't really go as in depth into branding and graphic design as I thought it would. Um, I wanted to have some more experience in an agency. So that's when I applied for an agency job and I worked that for about a year. And then after that, I moved to a different city. And uh, the idea was that I, I kind of felt like I wanted to do more with freelancing, but the freelancing was very hard to combine with a, a job at the agency. So that's why I left. And um, so then I started working for a virtual reality company last year um, while combining it with freelance. And then since August of 2020, I, uh, it was going so well that I um, you know, took the leap and quit to do this full time. That's really cool. So within quite a short period of time, you've worked for a few different companies. Um, you've mixed uh, working for an agency and doing your own thing. And now you're doing your own thing. How's it going in, in terms of being full time in the last sort of few months? Yeah, it's it's been really good. Like I don't regret it at all. I, I remember the day that I was quitting. I was just so nervous. I was so nervous and just <laughs> thinking like, is this the right decision? Like there's so many risks and now I actually did it. And I'm like, why haven't I done this before? Like it's, it's really great. Well, I, I can I can relate with that, although you did it a lot earlier than me. I was actually in a company for about 11 years until I uh, took that leap. And it's terrifying. I, oh, I don't know yeah. what your personal situation is, but I've got um, a little baby. I've got a mortgage to pay. Yeah. My partner doesn't work because she looks after the little one. So there's so much like pressure and stuff on me. But I think it's absolutely terrifying for anyone to take that leap. But everyone I know that's that's um, had the, 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 the courage to do that doesn't regret it at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, it's funny that you mentioned it though, because I was always thinking like, if I ever go to that, uh, level of, you know, responsibility of, you know, having a house, owing a mortgage or maybe having a family or something like that, then I would be, yeah, like you said, it, 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 I would be even more scared probably. So I was, kind of thinking as well, you know, if I don't try it now, then I'll probably never do because the best time is now to do it or at least experiment with it because I, I yeah. don't own a house. I just rent an apartment and I don't have a family yet. So it's perfect time to try it out. Yeah, definitely perfect timing. Well, I, I, I always thought with anything like this, and I think it was in the four hour work week, there's this exercise that Tim Ferriss does uh, all the time where he kind of imagines absolute worst case scenario. And I know for me, I'm quite lucky because I have family, 
absolute worst case scenario say if I couldn't uh pay my mortgage and to be fair if you're renting you still need to pay your rent otherwise you're gonna get kicked out (laughs) (laughs) um but you know worst case scenario if you can picture that in your mind what the absolute worst case scenario is say like you couldn't get any client work most people just go you just go and get a job don't you it's not as I don't think it's as uh, uh, scary in reality when you start to look at it in in that way yeah exactly because that's one thing that I had to click for it took a really long time to click for me is that I always saw you know taking that leap as, you know, it's an all or nothing situation and there's no way going back when there really is like, like you said, you know, if it fails then you can always go back, yeah. but I just didn't see it at the time. For me, it was always like, it's, it's an all or nothing situation, even though it's not. So, yeah. Yeah. Don't worry. I, I can totally, I can totally relate with that. I, I just want to quickly ask you, so when you did your qualification, you mentioned that it didn't go into branding as much as you would have liked to have done, but you was able to get a job at an agency. Did you need to create any of your own projects in order to get that job or, or was the work that you did in, in your studies enough to actually get you a job at an agency? Yeah, I actually don't think I ever used any work that I did at school as a portfolio, like in my portfolio. I just, it was a, when I started that agency uh, or at that agency, I mean, um, I just used a lot of my Instagram um, content that I made. And at the time uh, when I was working at the startup accelerator, it was my job right before it. um, That job was pretty easy in the sense of that I didn't have a lot of workload. So I just started sketching and learning about brand design while I was at that company. And that is how I made a lot of content while I was working, which probably isn't the right way to, you know, use your time at a job. (laughs) But I mean, I I didn't have a lot of work uh, to do there. So that's how I kind of filled my time. And that is how also how I filled filled up my portfolio. So Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting to hear that all of the work that you shared during that interview was none of the work that you did in your studies. It was all stuff that you did in your own uh, free time. And I, I think what's important to uh, bear in mind is that when you go for an interview, they want to see the type of work that you could potentially be doing. And that's probably the reason why you eventually got that job is that you know, you you not only uh, shown potential, but they could actually see the type of work that you would be doing, and that they could immediately take those skills and uh, put it to use right away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what I love about um, doing your own case studies as well is that the people who are going to see it, whether it's on Instagram or when you're applying for a job or something, is that. Um, they know what type of person that they're hiring. So if you have a very specific style that you like or a very specific type of client that you like working for, then people resonate with that uh, when they hire you. So there's, it's just more likely that you have a good match with the people that you're going to work for. So I think just doing your own case studies is a really good idea regardless anytime. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, I know when you first started out you you're you're now doing branding logo design I actually heard because I I listened to a couple of your podcasts you said that you originally didn't actually like logo design um (laughs) 
why was that and what's changed now well i i honestly i have no i i have no recollection <laughs> in what context i said this but um i remember though that i i i was just not attracted to it as much and i probably had the idea of you know all of all of the people that are doing logo designs or like the people that are offering it for $20 on Fiverr or something. And I yeah. just didn't see myself doing that. Um, but eventually I kind of started enjoying it more when I got introduced to it. And when I was doing logo design on Instagram is, uh, well, I mean, I was solely posting logos on Instagram. So I only got inquiries for just logos and that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to make like entire visual identities or corporate identities. Mm -hmm. Um, so I changed up my strategy a bit and showing more of just like bigger visual identities than just so like solely logo design. I really, uh, enjoy making or creating the context around a logo, uh, mm -hmm. probably even more than a logo itself, to be honest. Um, so just that it all clicks and fits. So maybe that answers the question. I don't know. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. And, um, I, I think it's interesting you, you said that actually, because I've, I, I mean, so many people have said the same thing, but you, um, if, if you want to attract a certain type of work, you need to show the type of work that you want. And at the beginning, like you said, you was just sharing logo design only, and I mean, that that's what I do myself because uh, primarily I, I do want those uh, logo design projects is what I personally uh, really enjoy. But if you want to do more branding projects, doing exactly what you did makes sense. You know, start showing uh, the, the larger identities and then when people need that, they can see that that's what you do uh, and so on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's usually how I do it as well. So, so as you mentioned, you're now... Uh, full-time freelance and if I understand right it's all going really well for you I think this is the type of thing that a lot of graphic designers would like to do are you able to share a little bit of uh, some of the behind the scenes stuff that you did to uh, go from working for someone else to running your own business getting your own clients and all, all of the stuff that goes along with that yeah sure um I think I actually only started being much more active with my freelancing at the start of this year so I let people know that I was doing that around my circles but I already I kind of already knew in advance that um I also wanted to focus more internationally uh, to work on a remote basis instead of just for the people within my network, especially when uh, COVID was breaking out. And um, I was getting inquiries pretty much through Dribble. I know that I have more followers on Instagram, but I was getting and still getting pretty much all of my inquiries from Dribble. Um, so at the time, I didn't really have to go look out for projects because they were all coming through me, like through that platform. Um, but yeah, as I uh, as the projects grew and I felt like um, financially it was the right time to make the leap um, is when, of course, a lot of more of my time got freed out and mm -hmm. uh 
to be honest, I'm kind of looking for new ways to do business development myself, because this is now actually the first time that I have time to actually approach other people instead of them coming to me. But I do find uh, LinkedIn and Facebook groups to be super helpful as well. And um, I have a couple of friends that I made through Instagram that are uh, very busy, uh, either with illustrations or designers who, or who work in-house for bigger agencies around the world that sometimes um, like hire freelancers to help out or uh, to take on certain projects. So connecting with these people has definitely worked out as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'd like to go into networking a little bit later in the uh, conversation, but since you mentioned Dribble. Mm-hmm. I don't really use it myself. And um, I think there's so many different ways that you can potentially get clients. But as long as you get enough to keep your business sustainable, that's all that really matters. And I think because you're doing more than logo design and you're doing larger identities, you probably realistically only need what, like 10, 20 projects a year in order to make it sustainable. So all of those activities that you're already doing through dribble and through Instagram is probably enough. But as you know, it's always worth looking into other directions and sowing the seed for other uh, potential ways that you could uh, attract potential clients. Uh, But anyway, dribble, would you be able to share what you've done in order to actually get clients through that platform? Yeah, sure. I actually, it's it's funny that you ask because I've been uh, experimenting with something that, um, the help, like helped me a lot as well, but like Instagram dribble is a platform where you can get a lot of followers when you interact with other designers. So I was checking out their work pretty much every day and commenting and liking and just interacting with a lot of people as well as trying to post regularly. That has helped a lot. And then um, because I also had followers on Instagram, I tried to funnel them through uh, my Instagram to dribble as well. Um, And then in terms of getting clients there, what I found was uh, being very thoughtful with the use of my keywords. So I use for a lot of my logo work that I post, I use the keyword luxurious or luxury because I have a lot more affinity with luxurious brands. And that's uh, the type of projects that I like to take on. So I use those keywords uh, and similar keywords in the projects that I post, which meant that uh, my work was starting to pop up on top when you're starting to search for these keywords. Um, And those are keywords that a lot of clients are going to search for on Dribbble that are looking for that look and feel. So I was slowly trying to um, describe my keywords in terms of an ambience of a logo and uh, or branding or kind of like a, a description of a look and feel that they're looking for rather than um, a very specific description that often logo designers use like a badge or a logo type or these types of things, because clients don't know these terms. So they're not going to look for these terms. Um, And that is how I've been lately seeing an increase in uh, dribble inquiries is just by uh, adjusting keywords to what clients are, at least in my head, are searching for instead of what designers are searching for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a really simple tip, but it's, it's very actionable as well. So if anyone is posting on there, if they start to be a little bit more thoughtful as to what keywords they're using, then I think that makes a lot of sense. Do you have any idea if 
your following on there because you you mentioned that you've been um, intentionally building up a following on there by commenting, by sharing it on other platforms. Does your following influence your position in the search results at all? Do you know? Um, I mean, I think so because there is like it, with Dribble, they've been. Um, throwing things around a little bit so Mm -hmm. they're renewing the platform quite a bit now and i do feel like they're giving newer uh designers with lesser followers more of an option now with a new and noteworthy option but if you get more likes then you also get on the popular page which is usually what people look for so i do feel like it's easier definitely especially when you're searching for keywords um, but it's not impossible because I actually only started using Dribble intensively last year, August. So it's been only little over a year that I've been really active on this platform. It's not undoable, which is what a lot of people think about Dribble. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how do you know that your leads are coming from Dribble? Are you are you tracking that in some way, or do you just ask your client where they originally came from? Um, well, I get a lot of, uh, direct messages on dribble. Um, mm-hmm. so people that are just clicking on the uh, hire me button and then send me a message on that platform or people that send me an email and saying like, Oh, I saw your work on dribble. It's great. Uh, let's have a chat or something. Um, and it's pretty much all emails start like that. It's never like I found you through Instagram or something. It's rarely the case to be honest. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Now, I, I mentioned about networking and um, it's something that I, I would like to speak to you about because you are very active online. That's that's how I, I came across you. I, I think um, I've seen you on a couple of podcasts. I've seen you on a couple of the Instagram lives. Um, I've seen you on Design Cuts yeah. live thing, I think. You, you've it. done quite a, a lot of different things. So you must be... Yeah. Uh, networking uh, a lot and um, I know you also had your own podcast as well uh, the cats out of the bag which is something that you do with a photographer friend of yours as well yes I know all of this stuff takes a lot of time obviously there's a value to it but why are you doing all of these different things is, is there a reason for it could you share that with the audience to be honest I just like doing it <laughs> you know with the the um you know, with the, you know, doing the Instagram lives and um, the podcasts and stuff. I don't think necessarily that I get clients out of it because I know that most of these podcasts that uh, other designers are looking at. um, And I'm, to be honest, I know that a lot of designers on Instagram, especially are uh, looking to fulfill some kind of uh, educational role, which is really cool, but that's not something that I'm personally interested in right now because I'm super young. And I still have so much to learn myself, but um, I don't know. I just enjoy it because like with uh, Connor and um, Mark Hirons and uh, Michael Fugoso, these are people that I met online and have become actual friends of mine. And so I just really enjoy just emerging myself in that community because I think the design community, especially on Instagram, is just really cool, really cool place to be. Mm-hmm. And you know what, I actually think you're a, a great advantage because um, people could do what you're doing for a very intentional reason. Um, and that's building social proof. 
I'm not sure if that's something that you've uh, yeah. come across, but yeah, you're you're at a great advantage. And I I actually did a, a similar thing. Like I really enjoyed posting on Twitter, on Facebook. I enjoy doing this podcast as well. But it all, I, I think, all of these small activities that you do builds up authority around uh, what you're doing, which is probably the reason why. Tom invited you to be on the Design Cups panel and that's why I've invited you on this. So you see, I think these things that people like yourself do almost like for fun is actually the type of thing that will eventually kind of catapult you to great success long term and that is what actually one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on and and to share all of this stuff because all of the young designers out there they're probably twiddling their fingers not being entirely sure what to do and there's you doing this because you like doing it and that's probably one of the main reasons why I actually started to get clients why you got uh, your first job originally (laughs) do you you know what I mean it's funny that you actually mention it because um, when I was I remember when I was applying for my first uh, agency job the moment that I walked in the inter- like the job interview, um, this guy that was interviewing me was asking, like, what is your Instagram strategy? Because you have so many followers. And I'm like, <laughs> whoa, you've done your research. <laughs> but I mean, then I realized, like, yeah, totally, I can, t- I can turn this to my advantage. It's not the goal of me doing that, but it's definitely an added um, advantage to it all. Uh, so yeah, definitely. I mean, the thing is, I think that people recognize the intention maybe behind people reaching out or people talking to each other and which makes the difference, I guess, because it's just, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just secondary advantages, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think that's how, you know, this horrible term influencer, Oh god. (laughs) uh, which I I really hate that word. And I know, um, I, I recently did my 100th episode and Mark who interviewed me on that episode, he actually asked me a question about being an influencer and I like, uh, uh, but I think that's how people, that are actually like genuine influencers become influencers because they they work hard they're good at what they do and they just happen to like helping people and and being genuine and I can see that you're um doing that so I I know you're only like three years into your journey or officially you know if if you're classing like uh, being full-time independent you're only like six months into your journey and I, I really think because of these small things that you're doing every day over like the next 10 years that's going to scale in such a significant way so you know you're you're 25 now in the next 20 years you could be on the same level as the likes of like Louise Feely and and Paula Cher and you know it's I, I think that's where the next generation of that type of person will come from is these social platforms and the 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 minute activities that they're, that they're doing on a daily basis yeah I mean that would be really cool though I, <laughs> it's insane to even think about it but that would be really cool actually but uh yeah I mean that's why because especially on IG lives or um 
when I see other people's uh, interviews or hear other people's podcasts is that they get a lot of the question of new designers to the community is and how do I start and I'm scared to start and I think it's just about just doing it. I think that even I have a lot of content on my Instagram where I look at right now and it's like, eh, this is just very mediocre uh, content, mm -hmm. but it's it resonates with some people and it builds up over time. And I think whenever you start and you're just posting regularly, then looking back and see how much you've improved, it just it's just really nice to see i guess yeah yeah and i i wouldn't remove any of the early stuff because it shows your progression it's something that you can look back through um but also you know people like ian barnard mm -hmm. uh who's like an absolutely amazing um uh, type designer um hand lettering artist if you go back through his older stuff you can see that he's progressed and i think that's nice to see you know it makes the the goal of actually reaching that level look realistic it just yeah you know you 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 don't become that person overnight you just keep working away at it and keep keep practicing and eventually you get there and I think that's the type of thing that's that's good for people to see especially young designers just starting out yeah um I I know pre social media I can imagine that you see these uh, incredible graphic designers and you only see what they want you to see so you see like all these new books and stuff like that but I I think now it's a lot easier to see that getting into the in industry is actually a, a very achievable realistic goal and all it requires is like time and effort <laughs> exactly yeah totally I mean I was introduced to branding during my bachelor's degree, but it was very minimal. Most of the stuff that I did was completely self-taught, to be honest. I think that bachelor's degree was just complementary to what I'm doing now, but you can totally get into it very easily, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I think a degree helps to open doors and it teaches you what you need to learn. And when you are self-taught one of the challenging things is that you don't know what you don't know so when I when I started out I'm mostly self-taught um, but it was helpful early on in my career actually having someone to uh, kind of point me in the right direction and I think that's what university does it gives you that like solid foundation and the connections and stuff like that but the real work you have to do it yourself you can't just sit there and think oh yeah, this is all going to happen now because I've I've got this piece of paper, but that's not how it works. It's a tough, tough industry out there. But I think if you work hard in the way that you do, then you're going to have success at the end of it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And and I mean, what I, I think is not discussed enough when it comes to bachelor degrees or learning this skill anyway, is that it takes a lot of, you know, pushing through and not like your ability to just push through and not quit is something that is very unique in people, uh, especially because there's so much new stuff popping up for everyone to learn and taking your curiosity. And so it's, it's, I think it's really cool if somebody actually finds something that they, that they enjoy doing and actually uh, master it in a very cool way, because it shows that they, even though it's a long road to learn, they, 
really have a goal in their head. Like, this is where I want to be at. This is what I want to be able to do. Um, and I'm not going to stop doing it until I'm able to do that full time, for example. And I think yeah. that is really cool. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a common trait across people that are successful in the design industry. They just keep going and don't give up and don't stop. And I think that's a characteristic that um, anyone that wants to enter this industry really needs. Otherwise, they're just going to get chewed up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're totally right. So I'd love to spend a little bit of time going into the process stuff. It's the type of thing that everyone loves. This is the Logo Geek podcast after all. I, I know you do uh, branding as well, so we can also go into that. So would you mind sharing us kind of like from start to finish? And you can go into as much detail as you want. You know, it's other graphic designers listening. Sure. So could you share with us your process for a typical branding project? Sure. Um, so usually I get an inquiry. So let's just say I get an inquiry from somebody um, that's like, I want a logo or a visual identity. Um, usually the question is always like, how much do you charge? You know, so um, I don't have set prices. I usually just link them to, uh, I send them a link to uh, the branding packages that I have on my website that uh, I kind of customly made for a, as like a base of what I've done. Uh, over the years that I think businesses or starting businesses often need when they're um, looking for a rebrand or a brand. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, is this something that is interesting to you? Um, if so, let's jump on a call. So then uh, they plan a call and we just discuss, um, you know, their business, what their goals are, um, what type of audience they're trying to attract, why they maybe want to rebranding, what's going wrong right now, what are the pain points, what are the wins, uh, what is the deadline, when do you want to launch, these types of things. Um, and also we discuss pricing and if they feel comfortable, then... Um, yeah, then the first fifty percent uh, gets paid, and then we move move forward to the strategic. Can I part. can I just quickly interrupt? So yeah. I think something that's important that that people know when you are doing sales for graphic design, mm -hmm. it's good to pretty much do what you did. So uh, the email comes in. Um, if they're interested in your service, you jump on a call. But I think the way that you 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 mentioned that you're aiming to understand how you can help and understanding the goals or what they need to do and then you're giving a price yeah exactly <laughs> you're, you're you're not just emailing them back saying oh it's such and such amount of money you are running through understanding and i think that doing that right away puts you at an advantage yeah. against other people because they can see that you understand you can talk through your process and i think that's really important sorry yeah. to, for, for interrupting no, I'll, I'll let you carry on I mean, to, <laughs> to uh add to that i know that people that are sending inquiries like this are often shopping around which is totally normal so i know that these people are probably sending this email to five to 10 other graphic designers. And I know mm -hmm. that if I just send my pricing and that's it, they'll just compare the big red numbers to the rest of yeah. the replies they get. And that's not going to help me. That's not going to help them. And it's not going to, you know, help them see the value in what I have to offer compared to what other people might have to offer. So I think that that is definitely the the way to go also to know if i'm a good match because maybe there's tons of red flags that i'm not seeing yet <laughs> so um yeah that's usually why i jump on the call first um but yeah then uh i usually work with 50 up front and then 50 uh before 
the completion uh, or like at the completion before delivering the final files. So then we jump on a strategy call, uh, which is kind of like a discussion call where uh, we go a little bit more in depth with the first call that I had um, and really go more to the core issues of what they're experiencing right now. And um, usually the clients also have mood boards prepared and something that they have in mind uh, as well. So then after the call, I do my research, I make my own mood board or stylescape and I present that to them. So um, I know that we're both kind of looking in the same direction because that's kind of what I'm trying to do as well. The whole time is very important to me that basically before I even start sketching, that the client and I both know what it's going to look like. That is ideally what I want to um, create in in that process. So um, after um, discussing the mood board and uh, my research, I start sketching and I make the proposal, um, which I then make in a presentation and uh, present in a call. And uh, I only um, I only present one concept. I never do multiple ones. And then usually it's just a hit right away. So there's usually maybe small, very small iterations, but usually it's a hit right away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the real advantages of doing a mood board or a, a stylescape is that you can uh, clarify the direction. Because I know, um, and I, I, I've had this experience myself, but there's a, a, a lot of designers, they experience this issue where they speak to the client they take the project on board they put a load of ideas together and then the client doesn't like it and you know there can become this issue of just going back and forth and then it can just all go sour and go wrong but I think how you can get around that is the way that you've approached this where I mean firstly you've had proper conversations with them to understand in detail what they're trying to achieve um, so understanding their goals and and their strategy as to what they uh, plan to do. But I think that that uh, mood board at the beginning, that clarifies a lot of the things because sometimes people say, I want something really modern, but actually what does that mean to them? And you can clarify that with a couple of images even before you uh, jump into any actual graphic design work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I feel like, especially with mood boards, it's, it's really comes in handy. And I also ask them, um, kind of what, if they have any brands they aspire to be like, or to be seen next to. So I really have an idea, you know, what their super brand or fan brand is or whatever you want to call it, but to really kind of have an idea of how they think. And that is, I think also the way for me to be able to present one concept is because I know what they're expecting and I know what they want is if I have that very clear for myself at first, then there's no need for me to present multiple concepts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I did notice, I mean, obviously that you do present one and I also noticed that you're quite upfront that you only allow two revision rounds What's the reason why you've approached it in that way? Because that seems quite like quite strict to only allow uh, two two rounds. Is there, is there some thinking behind that uh, approach? 
Well, to be honest with you, I don't usually just uh, allow two revisions. I usually just go ahead until, um, you know, we have the desired result. But mm -hmm. it's more to get an idea of, for, at least for the client, like don't go, um, uh, at least get a feeling for the client, like don't go uh, overhead with uh, tons of tiny revisions uh separately but if you have a revision then just let me know all at once and uh then we move forward from there so to be honest it's not like i'm counting it at all every time <laughs> but it's more to kind of um get a grip or some control over the revisions uh, oh yeah I yeah I, I mean i i do exactly the same um and being transparent when i first started out offering design services to my own clients i um at that time, I, I came from uh, an, an agency position and in that company, they they had issues with clients and I thought, that's not going to happen to me. I, I can convince my clients to go down this route. So I, I kind of allowed unlimited at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I mean, this, this was a long time ago now. And I learned quite quickly, <laughs> there will be that occasional client that wants to see so many different variants so I actually had this nightmare project where I put a design together they absolutely loved it but they wanted to see it slightly tweaked so I did the tweak and then they're like oh we don't like that we want to see it more like this and then they started sending over like screenshots of exactly what they want and then you do that and then you send it over and they didn't like that and it was just ridiculous and because it was unlimited there's no escape. There's no way of getting out of that. I, I think what I needed to do at that time was just literally say to them, this is completely unreasonable now. We're on like version number 25. I can't keep just making changes indefinitely. So I do, uh, I, I think with anything like that, you have to learn from your mistake and update things accordingly. So doing like you've done, uh, two rounds revisions I do I think it's four in my contract but I do the same as you like I if you know there's there's tweaks and it just means you know just make that tiny tweak and then it's done I would just do that you know if, even if it's above and beyond like uh, four rounds but I, I, I what that does quantifying anything in your contract and your proposals it means that you have the grounds to say no more, you know, if you want any further changes, this is going to be additional cost and so on. And the, the client can't say anything because it's in writing. And I think, like you said, it, it sets the ground that you're not going to accept constant tweaks. It, it needs to be, um, if there is any feedback, it needs to all come in one go and not be a ridiculous amount of changes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know what I also try cuz the the agency that I worked at, they did it in a similar way so they also said two revisions and that's it, but they usually always had more obviously. Um but like you said, it's uh you are in your position to say like okay, that's it. We've already um overdone uh ourselves. And that, that is also a thing with um having a limit of revisions. And even when you go over that, it's not bad or anything. It's just added service. I try to see it, you know, they have two yeah. revisions and I offer to help them more, but from those two revisions on, it's always my position to be like, no, it's, it's, it's fine like this. Let's find another solution. Um, but what I've done between two revisions and the point where I'm seeing that is all added service in that sense.
Yeah, absolutely. And the the one the one concept approach. I know that it's been heavily debated in lots of different places. I've heard um, both sides of the argument, and both sides have very valid arguments. But still, yeah. personally, I like to present at least two options so that there's uh, two to uh, compare. Mm-hmm. What's the reason why you firmly stood ground on the the one concept approach? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a good question because like you said, I think that both parties have very valid reasons as to why they're doing that. Um, for me, I did multiple versions beforehand as well, uh, before I worked at the agency and then there they um, they worked with the concept of only presenting one, uh, which was very scary to me at first. I'm like, how in, on earth are they only going to approach or be okay with uh, one concept? But it usually worked. And I think the reason why is, at least from a designer's perspective, I feel like every time when you make multiple concepts for a client, there's always that one that you're presenting that they hope they're going to pick, that one concept that you're just totally in love with compared to the other ones. And I just don't want to like send a design to my clients that I don't feel like they're going to love just as much as I do. Um, and so there's that. And then sometimes you present different, um, different concepts and, uh, then clients are like, can we just like match the two or marry the (laughs) two uh, into something new or combine the two or whatever. And I'm like, please don't. (laughs) And then then that happens. So like either way, I want to um, kind of prevent both of those things from happening. I actually, um, I did present two options once to a client last week. And that was probably the first time that I did that in over two years. Um, But that was only because there was one, the concept that I wanted to present was quite risky Uh, It was kind of a wild card. And so I presented a more safer option to go with it as well. But they eventually went for the wild card anyway. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I, I mean, I I think a lot of it is um, knowing that your process is effective. Because one of the reasons why I don't like to just show one, I have tried that. I I am always experimenting with different uh, approaches. But why I like to do more than one is... I know if I only show one, I will stop too early. Yeah. Because every time I've um, had the the situation where, say, I've got two, say, say I've got two really, really good ideas, and I think that they're absolutely amazing and nothing is going to be better than them, because I need to find another solution that I would like to present. I tend to push and explore territories which I probably wouldn't otherwise. And I I think it's worth saying I would never show anything that I genuinely wouldn't think would work. But I I think because it forces me to keep going past the point of um, uh, success, uh, because I've gone that far, I very often find a more effective solution that I would never, ever have got to if I just stopped yeah and I know I could create my own process where I uh, push myself to go through that exercise I just think I would probably start to get lazy a little bit lazy and just stop too early and 
I'd like to think that I would still show good work, but it it just pushes me to keep going in that direction. And there have been times when I've been really 100% sure about one. And in those cases, what I've done is I've actually gone to the client and presented the process of how I got to that one and why I feel it's so strong. So I'm always playing and experimenting, but even when I show one and I share the process, I'm showing lots of different potential variants of what I'm doing and sharing my thought process and everything like that. So I, I don't think there's any uh, set in stone process, but that's why I I prefer in most cases to show more than one solution. And also, I just personally don't believe that there is one solution to a problem. Uh, especially with logo design yeah. if you contact 50 designers you would get 50 completely different solutions <laughs> yeah. yeah you're totally right and that's totally legit actually and what you said about um you know the becoming lazy and like stopping at one point it's something that i caught myself doing at the very start as well so it's just something that i'm um because that's something that is kind of my internal fight basically um i tried to resolve that before but i totally get what you mean because sometimes i'm like yes this is it and um this is what it what they're gonna love and you know they usually do but i do feel like um maybe exploring more wouldn't hurt once in a while and sometimes i lack doing that so i totally get where you're coming from as well yeah yeah i think um emily aberman who works at pentagram who she used to work with, and I can't remember his name, Tibor, I think, Tibor. I can't remember the uh, uh, graphic designer's name, but with, with their approach, even if, say, within the first 10 minutes, they found what they believe is genuinely the most effective solution, just in case they will still run through the process. Like they have this process, they have to run through that just to make sure they covered uh, every corner, looked at every option, just to make sure that that one that they came up with in the space of 10 minutes is the best solution. And I think if you are going down the route of one solution at the end of it, I think you need to have that real strength within you to make sure that you do go through that process and, and don't get... Uh, lazy in the way that I know that I would if I was going to take that direction. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I understand. I I actually saw a video from, um, I think it was a short video on Instagram on, from Melinda Livesey. Uh, I think it was on Instagram. I can't be sure, but it was with her talking about um, one of her students, I think was talking about um, getting a client that, had worked with another designer before that presented them like 16 options or something for a couple hundred yes. dollars. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was insane amount and for a couple hundred dollars and they hated all of them. Um, and that she actually just charged way more and only offered one option. So the client was like, well, why the hell would we do that? Um, and she was like, okay, if you don't trust me, then um, pay me half uh, you can, you only have to pay me half and you can walk away. And so that that's what they did. And, um, they went through that entire strat- strategic process of really defining what they're looking for and their problems and really, uh, having a good picture of what they want. And apparently when she showed, uh, at least that's what Melinda said, when they, when she showed the final result, the client just started to cry 
because it was wow. perfect. <laughs> and so that's kind of what I'm trying to do now. I feel like the, at least that's what I wish I knew before is that the whole mm -hmm. strategic part is just so, so important. And I'm so glad that in, at least in the Instagram community, there's been more like people are talking more about strategy now than they did before um, when people were just liking like nice looking logos um, because it's such an important part of designing something like this. Uh, it just makes or breaks your whole concept, I think, in 99% of cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think strategy is absolutely essential. And I know there was a point, I, I think the uh, future and, and Christo probably originally uh, sparked it to drive their um, core product. Yeah, I, I think that's what kind of really sparked it. And it almost became a buzzword. But I think that kind of trend is, is winding down a little bit. It's not... Um, discuss like this crazy new thing now it is it's almost become like a anyone that's doing logo design branding uh, and so on properly they're all running through some kind of strategy-based exercise and that's really nice to see actually because it means that work is uh, getting better there's there's less design is just creating pretty pictures and and more designers actually finding effective solutions to problems yeah, exactly. And I think that's also going to make at least a difference to the outer world that has no idea what we're doing. Um, see the difference between the, you know, simple Fiverr logos to say mm -hmm. it very roughly, but um, between the, that type of work and the work that uh, people do that are actually uh, thinking more strategically, that there are actually logical designers out there than people that, um, you know, what the people kind of think about designers and artists that they're uh, maybe a little bit, um, I don't know, like, uh, I don't, I, I don't know the English word for it, but uh, free thinking and mm -hmm. not very logical thinking about their brand or strategic thinking. I think that that's now kind of more and more associated with design, which I think is really cool when at first that it wasn't. And so people mm -hmm. didn't value it as much as people are doing these days and I think that's the feeling is increasing more and more oh yeah definitely I also wanted to say looking through your portfolio I can see that you do quite a few different um styles which which is good um because I, I I know there's some designers out there you can look at the work and see that it's theirs but it's nice to see that you are creating different styles, but you also have that capability. So I've seen like the super clean kind of minimal designs, but also there was one uh, with a little rhino. I've got a note down. Yeah, Turo Bravo, a project that you did. You did this like sketched out rhino. How did you go about doing that particular logo? Is that drawn by hand and then like uh, uh, live traced in Illustrator or something like that? Yeah, I, I did it with uh, like an old uh, Wacom tablet. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 funny that you that you started talking about that because um, like a lot of people sometimes uh, like in lives, for example, they're like, oh, I love your style. And I'm like, I don't know what my style is, guys. <laughs> what is my style? But, um, yeah, I don't know. I actually, um, I think a while back or a couple of years back, I, 
uh, read something. I think it was about Pablo Picasso or something that before he did a lot of abstract work, he was learning to do very realistic paintings. Mm-hmm. And I really like that idea that you kind of master very fine arts before um, going uh, abstract and more, um, like I said, very minimal. Yeah, more abstract. minimal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. To kind of master both so you actually have some reasoning as to why you're doing it. It's not like you don't put a lot of detail in it because, you know, I mean, you can, but you just choose not to for a good reason. And that is kind of how I started my whole creative journey anyway, is because when I was in my teenage years, I was obsessed with doing uh, photorealistic portrait drawings that actually look like photos. And that is kind of how I started. But having that, I think, eye of detail and trying to do different things, um, it also opens up a lot more options when you're making something for a client. Because like you said, like no option is already, uh, there's no one option that is uh, right. And I think it's a risky thing, but it can also be a very cool thing is when you're a designer with a very specific style, then the clients that are going to approach you are probably maybe approaching you because they like that style, but that doesn't mean that it might be perfect for your brand. And that can be a very risky thing in my opinion. So I try to do different styles, but um, yeah, that's usually why I do it. No, it's good. Cause I think um, as we kind of, got to throughout this conversation you you show the type of work that you want to attract so showing that you can do a diverse range of different styles means that when people approach you uh or when people come across a piece of work they might sometimes come to you and and say I actually want something like that and I, I think with logo design specifically a lot of the time people come to you because they want something like the work that you've done before that they want some uh uh some element of that so, something that i try to do with my uh portfolio anything which i feel doesn't fit within the type of work that i actually want to do i've taken out so um like i've i've been lucky enough to work with companies like warhammer on projects and, and oh, i've done yeah. some really cool yeah. uh stuff but it's like all very complex artwork with lots of details you know that it would it would probably be the type of thing that would be really cool for like a movie but I found any client that saw that or any potential client that saw that it was app developers that had no money it was people that were creating their own thing that had no money so and and anytime I got that type of project to be honest I didn't really want to do that style I I prefer the more minimal style I, I find um with logo design, the more simple something is, I, I find it's actually harder to do. And I like those more complex challenges. And, and I, I found since I show only that kind of minimal style on my website, that's exactly the type of client I get. So you'll probably find, you know, give it another five, 10 years, you'll probably get to a point where you'll be like, actually, I don't like doing that style or I don't have a preference to that style, I'm going to push that one to one side. And you might eventually find that you become more of a specialist in another. So I think doing lots of different uh, styles and finding uh, your your direction is, I, I think it's a really good thing to do. Yeah, thank you. And to be honest, I was kind of um, 
um, doubting in terms of what I post for a long time, because everybody in the industry is always talking about niching down, which is totally legit. Like I get it, uh, totally makes sense. Um, but I feel like people that are getting into design, they immediately feel like they need to niche because they, that's what the whole industry is talking about right now. But I, I mean, I'm only 25. There's enough time for me or enough room for me to um, decide which route I want to take uh, if I even want to niche down. So that's what I'm kind of trying to do. And maybe if that's not, uh, maybe it's not smart to do it out in the open on Instagram for thousands of followers, but that's what <laughs> I'll do anyway. <laughs> no, I, I don't see any harm in it. I, I know there's a lot of conversations about niching down, but I mean, I, uh, I, I know I work on logo design, which is technically a, a niche, but that kind of happened by accident. But I could take that further and specialize further. So to only do logos and identities for like a certain industry. But I, I think as long as you have work coming in, it's fine. I, I think the, the, the advantage to niching down is that uh, you can really hone your marketing messages. You know exactly where to find people. There's loads of benefits to doing that. But you know, when you're um, in your in your twenties, uh, do everything. I mean, I've I I've done like movie posters, game artwork, animation sheets. Um, I've done exhibition stands, brochures, catalogs. I've I've done everything, and. Wow. Um, I mean, a lot of people don't know that because they just know me as like the logo geek. But um, I think it's good to dabble in everything. And then, you know, as you get older and you you kind of want to spend your your time with like uh, kids or whatever, you want to use your time more intelligently and uh, niching down and specializing in a, in a certain skill. It, it makes sense but that doesn't happen overnight it's a gradual progression and I don't think anyone needs to rush you I think it's something that you find on your own so yeah you know if you're just starting out don't worry just do just do everything but just be aware that the reason why everyone is talking about niching down is because you can hyper target your messages your content your services and so on to yeah a single person rather than trying to sell the same thing to everybody yeah yeah, exactly. It's just clear messaging is what also attracts more clients as well. So, yeah, I mean, I get it. So it's just like, I don't know when I'm going to have to make a decision, but we'll see. No, no, yeah. just do it in your own time. Yeah. Do it in your own time. There's no rush for this stuff. Yeah, we have, We've done just over an hour. So I'm going to ask you one last question and yeah. then we'll wrap this up. So imagine yourself getting inside a time machine. And you're going to go back to any time in your life. You know, it could be last week. It could be when you was a kid. It could be in a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. If you could go back, but you could only give yourself one piece of advice before returning, what piece of advice would you give to yourself and when? Um, <laughs> yeah, I maybe before uh, before I was going to college. And I would probably give my advice to just try out as many things as you can and don't hold on too much on stability, I think is mm. a trap. So don't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I mean, I, th I think that's really good advice, especially, uh, you know, when you're young, if you if you still live with parents and you've got all this like, like a laser safety net, um, experiment play do do whatever because when you get older and you start to uh, have a mortgage and kids like that 
playing with things and trying different things, it's uh, um, it's a little bit riskier. But when you're young, just just play, just do do whatever you need to do. Don't worry about trying to build a business or any of that sort of stuff. Just just play and experiment. And that sounds like a good piece of advice for your younger self. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when I was in uh, when I was in college, I um, I had the option, for example, to go on an exchange to the U.S. For, at a university and I didn't do it because I just had a new apartment that I was super proud of and now I'm like <laughs> god Lisa why didn't you do it <laughs> <It's just> apartments <laughs> well you you only live once so you know I think even when you're younger you can still do all that sort of stuff yeah. um anyway anyway I think we wrap this up Lisa it's been absolutely fantastic thank you so much for coming on and for sharing your story and lots of advice and so on I'm I, I'm hoping that it will inspire uh lots of people and um yeah it's been it's been really great so thanks so much yeah thank you so much for having me it was fun that was a fantastic interview and hopefully you'll agree with me that Lisa has a really bright future ahead of her. So if you want to follow along with her journey, go and check out her website, lisajacobsdesign.com or head to the show notes where I'll link to that, all of her social profiles and any resources discussed and a transcription of the interview too. So to find the show notes, head to logageek.uk forward slash 104. And if you're keen to discuss anything mentioned in this interview with me and over 10,000 logo designers from around the world, make sure that you're part of the Logo Geek community. It's free to join and it's very, very active. So you'll get any of your questions answered and hopefully you'll make a few friends in the process too. So to find it, just head to logogeek.uk forward slash community or just head to Facebook and search for the Logo Geek community and you'll find it that way. So that is it for this week, but I'll see you the same time next week for another exciting episode of the Logo Geek podcast.